Hey, PolicyCast listeners. Before we get started today, I just wanted to note that starting next week, Harvard will be going on a holiday break, and as such, so will PolicyCast. But don't fret, we'll be back in late January with more perspectives from the world of public policy, politics, and global issues. But before we go, we have a favor to ask. If you enjoy PolicyCast and think others will benefit from the content we're producing, would you take a minute to go rate the show on iTunes? While we distribute the show on many channels, the large majority of you are still using iTunes to listen in, and those star ratings have a big effect on where we show up in the rankings and search results. Besides, we're always interested in getting feedback. PolicyCast couldn't happen without you, our listeners. So thank you for all your downloads. We can't wait to bring you more after the break. Happy holidays, and on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can connect with us on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of policy research done here at the Kennedy School. Joining us today is Kennedy School professor Asim Kwaja, who co-directs the Evidence for Policy Design program out of the Kennedy School Center for International Development. It's a program that's focused on bringing that cutting-edge research to the developing world to create better policy. Professor Kwaja, thank you for joining us. Great. Um, thanks for having me here. Um, it's a pleasure. So uh, before we get into the program, I want to start off with a bit of your background. Looking back at your research papers, it spans a wide array of topics, everything from education to psychometric testing for uh, creditworthiness uh, and even the effects of religion on tolerance. What drives you to pursue these myriad topics? You're saying, why am I intellectually schizophrenic? Yes, uh, <laughs> I've been asked that question in the past as well. Um, I think um, I'm driven, I guess, by interesting questions um, and then bringing to bear whatever tools we have in, in particular, and I'm an economist, since in my case, uh, data in theory, uh, to try and answer those questions. Now, what triggers those questions often isn't sitting in the desk kind of thinking about reading three papers and saying what the fourth paper should look like. Uh, often in my case, and I think it's true for a lot of my colleagues as well, it's very much problems you encounter in the real world. Uh, in our case, since we, we both teach policy and interact with policymakers, and both in a pedagogical sense, but also in a practitioner sense, we, we go to countries and we meet people and we work on projects. A lot of these questions are inspired by some of the problems that are being faced. And I, and I find that to be um, a fascinating and, and exciting um, way to solve problems. So that wide array of interests seems to lend itself well to this particular program, EPOD, I believe is what you call That's it. That's right. So, um, so can, you, can you explain exactly what EPOD is and what, how, how it came about? So I guess it's, it's uh, it, it, uh, one way of saying it is it's the result of many years of angst and, and, and self-questioning about the work we were doing ourselves. And so, so let me back up a bit. There is a, there's a sense in which we as academics and uh, development economists are no exception to this hope that um, we, we publish work, we write, uh, we, we, we bring new ideas, hopefully, to the world, we measure things more carefully, we calibrate, and, and the hope in some level is that all of this leads to better policymaking. And, you know, in quite a few cases, that is the case indeed, it does. Uh, knowledge does help uh, policymakers and practitioners make better informed decisions. Uh, but I guess my own frustration with my work, which was in education and finance, was that that wasn't quite enough. Um, it wasn't enough in the following sense. First of all, often the knowledge we brought to bear wasn't sufficient to, to allow for action. 
And secondly, sometimes even the questions we asked weren't necessarily the ones you would have asked had you sat down with the policymaker and said, well, what are you really worried about these days? Mm-hmm. And so um, so a lot of that kind of, if I will, uh, when I was sort of being slightly cheeky when I said angst, but it, there is some kind of truth in that, which is a lot of the self-criticism we have on, of our own work um, naturally led uh, to me and, and together with Rohini Pandey, who co-directs this. And we have now a bunch of junior faculty. There's Rima Hanna, there's David Drott, there's Ryan Sheely. There's a bunch of our junior faculty as well. And all of us, I think, have been grappling with the same issues that, you know, the excitement we've, we we experience in the field, and there's a lot of interest now in developing economists being in the field. And what we mean by being in the field is, is not just going to a developing country and gathering data, but it's really interfacing with individuals who are facing real challenges, be they households trying to figure out what which, which school to send their kid to, or banks to figure out where to lend their money, or you know, tax uh, secretaries trying to figure out what the innovations and taxation policy they should be adopting. Any of these individuals for us are, are fountains of ideas. They're, they're, they're both fountains for interesting problems that they're facing, but also they have interesting insights into those problems. And so um, what we're trying to kind of work at EPOD is, is figuring out whether there is a collaboration between the research community broadly and the practitioner or policymaker community. Um, and in a sense, a, a relationship where it isn't just about uh, we produce the evidence and they adopt it, or uh, they give the problems and we go back to our offices and solve them, uh, but really less about, you know, people often talk about bridging the two worlds or bridging the two communities. And for us, that bridge only is needed when you separately started off on your parts and then eventually you had to bridge them. Mm-hmm. So our view is that there is no need for a bridge because you just start together. So mm-hmm. so when I say start together, f- that even means the basic question that you have to ask should be jointly asked, should be jointly discovered. Um, and, you know, that sounds sometimes like, oh, this is great, but your timeframes are different from their timeframes. So it's it's challenging for mm-hmm. sure. But, you know, there have been several instances now for us where we've developed long-term relationships where we really are um, sitting with a policy counterpart and together over a course of years even, um, coming up with the next set of problems and then jointly brainstorming about them. Uh, in fact, I think the best compliment I've ever gotten in my academic career, which is maybe a sad testament to my career itself, is when one of these bureaucrats said to me that you guys, talking of us as researchers, are like a piece of furniture now in my office and i took that as a great compliment because what he was trying to tell us is that you're you're part of the everyday decision making and everyday and i think that's great i think there is a possibility that we as researchers can play that role um at the same time not necessarily being consultants i mean there is a great value being consultants and no disrespect to that uh endeavor but but where our purpose is still to to contribute to the body of knowledge, mm-hmm. yet we can do this in tandem. And so I think that's the excitement that uh, we feel in EPOD uh, we could bring about. So it seems like your uh, focus is on emerging economies. What is it about working with those communities that lends itself to this kind of uh, this kind of research together with communities? That's a great question. Um, I don't think it's actually peculiar to that. It so happens, in fact, when we first started, uh, we happened to be developing economies because we were developing economists, but there are people in our group. There's Amitabh Chandra, who's a health economist who studies U.S. health issues. Um, My sense is, is it that in the U.S. this is less necessary? Or I would argue in the U.S. this already happens in a lot of, or in developed economies, uh, some aspect of, of this is already happening. Partly, they have in-house research capacity. If you're the Department of Labor or the New York Fed, you have a mm-hmm. lot of internal research which is ongoing. And so this disconnect between the researcher and the practitioner is less so because you have the researcher inside of you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, in other places, it doesn't happen even in the U.S., uh, so there are challenges. In developing countries, typically a lot of these um, uh, government departments or, or politicians or even civic society organizations which are trying to be in this public space don't have literally the capacity. They, they may have the interest. They simply don't have the resources. And so a lot of what we're doing, we're hoping in the course of doing this is not just us, this being a constant equilibrium, but we're helping build capacity so that eventually they can do it. Mm -hmm. And eventually the dialectic becomes, I think, what is more similar in the US, which is there is an internal research going on. And then the external researcher is there for a different purpose, which is mostly to do a sound check on whether you know, or bouncing off ideas or, or a more critical evaluation. You know, sometimes there's too much navel gazing. If I'm in my own department doing my own thing, have I really kept abreast of what the other world is doing? So I think there is a role in developed economies for this sort of work as well, but it's, it's, it, it can change a bit because you have it, internal capacity. Mm -hmm. But I would argue the EPOD vision, at least, is not at all restricted to emerging or developing economies. It just so happens that's what mm -hmm. most of we are. I think we're beginning to see opportunities, particularly in certain areas in developed economies where there is still need to kind of have these relationships develop. I imagine one of the symptoms of any emerging or developing economy is corruption. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious, how, how do you get started in a place where, you know, that's probably existing somewhere along the line. So I, so I also, I guess I have a different view that I believe corruption exists everywhere in some sense. Well, that, it's, that's it's, it's, hard it's to a, argue with. It's a, it's a harsh <laughs> word to use. And so for, for economists, I guess the way we view this is, is less the moral aspect of corruption, which mm -hmm. is often how it's used, but more the, if there is an economic opportunity where someone will find to better themselves, they often tend to take it. Mm -hmm. um, that instinct to, to maximize your own welfare or self-preserve, whatever you want to call it, is very inherent. And so I guess our view is much more um, create systems which allow people to maximize their happiness, their welfare, without having them choosing the corrupt path or what we would call the corrupt path. Uh, mm -hmm. In more fancy economics terms, we would say whatever policy you design, it has to be incentive compatible. It has to be in the interest of the individual, be they a politician or a bureaucrat or an average citizen or a, a lower level public servant to actually comply. Um, if it's not in their self-interest, no matter what you do, eventually things will escape. And this is like tax loopholes in the U.S. as well, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so really it's about coming up with designs which are not almost by fiat or by, by legal decree brand people as corrupt or non-corrupt because I think that's just not a, that's a non-starter. Uh, you don't have the, you know, you don't have situations where you can simply fire or not fire people. You have to work with whatever resources you have. And so our view is what I would call sort of more elaborate mechanism design, which is given the constraints and, and, and needs people have, can you come up with a mechanism, a system where they're kind of all relatively happy and doing the right thing? Now, it's challenging. It's extremely challenging. Sometimes you just simply can't. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times I've seen, and so I'm working on a project, for instance, on tax collectors. And um, and tax collectors in developing countries are probably one of the most maligned group of people in terms of being corrupt. Right. And what we did was we said, okay, I'm sure these guys are corrupt, but is there a way we can introduce performance pay? Uh, so reward them for actually be doing a good job, which mm -hmm. is not the case right now. The case right now is you get paid a really low flat wage. So you're kind of forcing people. It's like waiters relying on tips. Uh, not that tips is any way corrupt, but it's the same idea. So right. if you're forcing people to only make money by being corrupt, of course they're going to be corrupt. And so we give people other opportunities. And what we find is that there are a lot of inspectors, tax collectors, who actually are really performing well. Mm -hmm. The same people who ex ante you would have said, 
there's no way these guys will work hard or, or do a better job. And now they're responding. Now, whether that completely eliminates corruption or not is, is a different question. Uh, it probably doesn't. Uh, but at least it's a it's a it's an alternative path uh, to I think what everyone cares about, which is a, a comfortable life. I don't think we can begrudge that. So if there if the old model was that you would go into a community with you know a background in research and knowing you know what the latest and greatest uh, policy design is, um, and this new model seems to shake that up. What how do you actually engage with these communities? Do do communities approach you? Do you um, go in and you know, find people who are interested in working with so you? It's, it's a, so far, I don't think we've done enough to really come up with a sensible structure on how this happens. It's been a sure. bit of everything. Um, how, how, how many uh, ongoing projects do I you I guess have? between us and EPOD, there'd probably be maybe 15 to 20 different engagements. Okay. Uh, but, you know, in the large scheme of things, that's still pretty small. Sure. Uh, we're um, just beginning to push this. But I think even when you have that, my guess is a lot of times... What is needed right now is what works in a lot of cases where we found success is we just happen to get a willing counterpart uh, mm -hmm. on both sides. On the researcher side, a researcher who's amenable to this sort of work, because it takes time. Um, there's a lot of annoyances that you wish you'd be able to just wish away, you know, constraints a politician or bureaucrat faces. And you're like, well, this isn't a real constraint for me. Why should I worry about this? Uh, but we have to take them seriously. And, and mm -hmm. vice versa, on the, on the policy counterpart side, needs that we as researchers might have about data, about evaluation, about systematic processes. Um, and so that does mean that there's a subset so far of both policymakers or practitioners and researchers who are doing this. But my own hope is that increasingly as we start doing this, as, as the, if you will, the results of this start showing up and people start saying, well, this is actually worth the cost. Um, then, you know, then a structure emerges. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're trying to do that at EPOD. We're trying to say, if we reach a point where we put enough of this out there, you know, we have a constant um, flurry, if you will, of, of policymakers at the Kennedy School. Right. And so a lot of what we started doing is bring these ideas into how we teach both our students, but also our executive education courses, uh, where we have an occasion to kind of interact with these individuals. And, and some of these interactions have started emerging where they'll come up and say, well, this is interesting. I, I think I'd like to try it in my department or my country. And so, so that starts a relationship. Uh, even that still requires this kind of personal interface. Eventually, we'd like to just to be, you know, in a, this is an online world. We don't need to be physically. Eventually, these ideas should be out there. And in fact, we'd encourage other Others, you don't even have to go through us. We'd like to put up templates in place to say, how would you go about doing this? Mm -hmm. um, here is a to-do for researchers as well, which is if you want to engage policymakers, is there a systematic way where you can facilitate this? And that's something we're beginning to develop. Uh, we're doing a lot of conferences. Um, I don't like conferences in general because you know people just lecture and leave. Uh, but kind of more workshop style things where you get together as a group of individuals from these constituencies, researchers, policymakers, practitioners, and we put them in a room and say, you know, just work out a problem together. Mm -hmm. um, and those are beginning to, uh, we, we're beginning to get some lessons and how do you structure those? Um, how do you facilitate more of those? And that's another way I think that we can we can catalyze more of this work. Sure. So you're trying to bring smart policy design to these these communities that you're working with. How would you actually define that? What, what are the hallmarks of smart policy design? So uh, it's a bit of a immodest thing to say smart because it suggests that otherwise policy design is dumb. But it's uh, so I, I, we're we're still toying with whether that's the right way of describing it. Sure. Oh, uh, what we really mean is by uh, is by, uh, by smart is sort of analytically driven 
systematic policy design. Mm-hmm. And for that, we have started thinking about very, very sort of well-delineated, um, if you will, mental heuristics, simple steps. Because, you know, in the abstract, it's easy to say these things. But when you sit down on a table with four people and you have to do it, uh, how do you go about doing it? And for us, the basic steps are the first is, you know, a joint identification of a problem. Now, that sounds trivial because you'll say, of course, I know what my problem is. Mm-hmm. But you'd be surprised how many times a problem that a policymaker starts off with isn't really the problem they're trying to solve. So, for instance, you might think your problem is is raising enrollment re- levels in education. You know, I want to get my kids in school. But when you really ask the policymaker or politician, you know, is that really what you want? Ultimately, they'll say something far more challenging and sophisticated, which is I want citizens in my country to have... Um, well-paying jobs, mm-hmm. right? And that's why education is important. Now you've suddenly changed. It's not about enrollment anymore. It's about quality. And in fact, it's not even just quality. It's quality which can translate into employability. Right. So now your education policy is a very different policy. It's not getting kids in. It's getting kids into a meaningful uh, educational experience. Much harder problem, but mm-hmm. uh, actually the real problem you're trying to solve. So the first step for us is jointly identifying what really is the policy issue we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to go back after five years and say, oh, shoot, we were actually really trying to solve quality when we ended up solving, solving enrollment. Mm-hmm. And we've done that, by the way. So uh, we focused on, on uh, and the initial version of the Millennium Development Goals were very much on enrollment, not on quality. And now they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're being updated. Um, the second step for us is, uh, again, something which is missing, uh, is diagnosing what is causing that problem that you're trying to solve. And, you know, this is kind of really boring from the medical field where diagnosis isn't simply the patient is bleeding. Sure, that's the symptomatic diagnosis. It's right. more the underlying disease. If I see a patient bleeding, what's causing the bleeding? Is it internal hemorrhaging? Is it there's a liver failure? Is it there's some other complication happening? So just thinking through in economics, what would we call that would be sort of the deeper causal factor. So if you're seeing teachers aren't showing up to teach, um, that's a symptomatic problem of low quality in education. But you have to ask yourself, why aren't teachers showing up? Mm-hmm. Is there a political economy equilibrium which is causing teachers not to show up? In which case, why are politicians not worried about teachers showing up? In which case, why are parents not lobbying politicians to say, why isn't a teacher in my community showing up? So you start digging far deeper. So that's the, the second step for us. The third step uh, is designing the solution. Mm-hmm. And and this is important for us because a lot of times, um, a lot of policy is like, a, you know, to hammer everything looks like a nail. And so people come up with already a solution in mind. So, you know, mobile technology, mm-hmm. smartphones, you know, it's great. You know, sure, there's new technology coming up. And what we do, what we end up doing is it's the, the tail wags the dog, right? It's the solution is out there to looking for a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. And what we push people is to say, look, you just did this elaborate exercise where you identified your problem, you discussed the causal factors. Whatever solutions you come up with should now be organically constructed. It should be constructed as a means of directly addressing the problems the deeper problems and the deeper causal factors. If it doesn't, it's a wrong solution. And in fact, we've had groups where we've done this where people have come up and said, oh, I have a solution in mind and it's great, but it doesn't really solve the causal problems that we agreed on. Uh, should we change the causal problems? <laughs> to which I say, absolutely not. You should change your solution. So we talk about sort of coming up with a solution. That's where theory really comes in. Mm-hmm. And then for us, the last kind of two steps are... Um, kind of mush together in a way is uh, testing so data comes in so any solution you come up with so I'm, I'm sort of very inspired by engineers as well and what I love about engineers is um, you know they'll they'll use limited theory and data whatever they have to build the machine because the machine has to be built it has to run you can't wait and policies like right. that you can't just wait till the perfect data or perfect theory is out there but what they are modest about and smart about is that they realize that even though they've built this machine it's imperfect 
Now, a smart machine is a machine just like you have like an onboard computer in your car or, you know, you have when Windows crashes, it says should click here to send an error report. You know, you should be self-learning. Mm -hmm. So policy should be made in a way where it's gathering data, not just to evaluate itself. Am I working? Am I not working? But also to be ready that I will not. There will be occasions where I will fail. There will be aspects of me as a policy which will not work well, even if they're working well last year. We need to have feedback loops in place where when that data comes in, we can readjust the policy. And so for us, policymaking then really is like that smart onboard computer in your car, which basically every six months a yellow light comes on, or hopefully it doesn't, but once in a while it does. And when it does, you go back to the mechanic and there's be a policy readjustment. Something has to be changed in the car. Mm -hmm. um, that's the way we'd like policy to happen as well. So that's the last step for us, which is setting up a data monitoring and evaluation process which lends itself not just to evaluate the current policy, but also to, to adjust it. And I think that leads to a very interesting dynamic, which is in most interactions between researchers and policymakers, both of us, we end up disempowering each other. The policymaker disempowers a researcher by saying, all you're useful for is to come in and tell me whether what I did worked or not. That's very disempowering for a researcher because that's not exciting for us. We're, mm -hmm. we're not as an, here as an executioner or as a, or as a congratulator, right? It's, um, you know, a machine can do that. Um, and also it's very disempowering for the policymaker because the policymaker feels we're just redundant. You know, it's been done. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're not coming here and either you're going to declare victory or failure. And either way, you know, even if you declare victory, I already declared it. You know, <laughs> you're not adding any value. Right. But if they think of us as working in tandem through them, then the, then, the, then the notion of evaluation, in fact, that's a very loaded word. It's not even evaluation. The notion is that we're jointly trying to get whatever policy you're doing to work better. Mm -hmm. That's the objective. Uh, and I think that's a very empowering objective for both of us. Um, so. Well, Professor Haseem Kwaja, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.